A generation of businesses are over-strategizing. Today, we're gonna tell you how to lock down a simple strategy. We're gonna tell you how to allocate and plan a budget and how to align all your teams to grow beyond your expectations in 2024. I'm your co-host, Kit Bodner, Chief Marketing Officer at HubSpot. I'm joined by my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, Chief Marketing Officer over at Zapier. And this is Marketing Against the Grain. Let's get into today's show. Before we get to today's show, let me tell you about HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you keep your customers happy can feel impossible. Like, try to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at the networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help. It brings together service and success together on one platform. With AI-powered help desk and chatbots to handle your frontline support tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Kieran, sometimes we do the buzzy ones and sometimes we do the in the trench shows. And this is an in the trench show. We are giving people the deep dive in all things strategy and budget today because it's the end of the year. People are in the midst of locking down budgets, debating what they're going to work on next year for their marketing strategy. And you know what? We wanted to jump in and throw our opinion there. We just locked up our budgeting and strategy process at HubSpot. Are you done at Zapier yet? End of this week. So we will be done end of this week. End of this week. All right. You're in the home stretch. I do wonder. Uh, I listened to like this podcast, a bunch of podcasts recently, but everyone's kind of side in the Brian Chesky one. I do like the way Airbnb do two-year plans and then just like don't do any kind of large-scale wholesale changes. Like everything's on a rolling basis versus this kind of annual plan where everyone goes into the trenches for like two, three months and figures out what they're doing next year. I think it depends on the company size, right? Like people have different plan and cadence based upon company size, but I like that. Like I like to your plans. Actually, I don't think it's company size. The whole thing around annual plans versus a rolling 24-month plan or any other type of plan, largely I think, Kieran, comes down to how predictable is your business Mm. And how agile can you operate with in the financial constraints, right? Like if, oh, I make this plan, I have this rolling plan, but then my business goes really poorly and I have half as much money to execute that plan. Can I change and make that happen? So I think most people are in an annual plan just to try to manage the variance of the business year to year, which has some benefits, has some drawbacks, I think, which you're kind of pointing out. I think in marketing, it's much better when you can have a longer lead time to plan against, more resources to plan against versus like, crap, didn't I just do this planning stuff like a week ago and now you're asking me to do it again, right? Right, that's what I mean. Yeah, like, you know, it depends how often your marketing playbook changes, but I think it, it would be nice not to have to have a large, intensive planning cycle every year. There's a serious cost to that. Yeah, so I think, I think the first thing on this point that I would make is, I think really great marketers and really great marketing strategies, they're really kind of two to three year cycles, you know, where it's like if you're adding something new to your marketing strategy, year one, you're just kind of like building it up, you know, year two, you're kind of finishing it and optimizing it. And then maybe in that finishing and optimizing period, you've learned some more stuff for year three. But I think about to a lot of the work that we've done together, that was kind of how the cycle went. It was never like, Cool, six months in, we're done here. Uh, Had a schedule and now we're on to the next thing. It was rarely like that unless we just were completely wrong about uh, investment or bet that we made to be successful, right? 
Right. I think a lot of times your annual is just like a continuation of the things you believe in and some sort of course correction and then trying to align to the business. Like if the, you know, the business is often trying to invest in other areas that the marketing team need to support. I am starting to just dislike, there's just too much strategy. <laughs> this is my kind of main thing in what tech is. Ooh, I like this. I feel like at some point in tech, I think maybe it's a little bit of the copying the Amazon memo, which I do really like, like the six page memo, or, you know, mm -hmm. some of those ways that those companies operated, some of those kind of rituals that at some point, part of your job was just being able to like articulate something in a memo that sounded really great, but like lacks follow through. And to me, I've started to really reappreciate the line by line tactics. Like what are, okay, like, cool. This is like, fine. But what are you actually shipping this month? Well, and how does it solve a problem? And like, that's the part where I think there's like the real detail and the stuff that matters. Right. So I think there's a couple layers to this that actually combine to make marketing magic. I think the first one is a strategy that is simple, right? That does not have too many components. I actually don't think there's too much strategy. I think there's too many strategies. Right. There's too many like bullet points and items in your strategy. It's overcomplicated. Yeah. So if you're watching and you want to start be like, what do I do and how do I think about this? I think your strategy has to be three to four things. I'm a three thing person because the fewer things you have, the more focus and magnitude and clarity you can give, whether it's just yourself working on that or it's you and an entire team of people working on that. Right. And next biggest mistake I see people make is like, cool. Well, I've gotten from my six big strategies to my three strategic bullets, right? And so an example of that might be like, oh, I'm going to increase brand awareness through paid media. I am going to grow my demand generation through organic search and affiliate marketing. And I'm going to build my own media awareness through investing in YouTube. Or the last one could be product marketing, could be a whole host of things, right? We're making this up, but it would be three kind of statements at that level of detail, right? Like a very simple sentence. Right. Where I think most people mess this up is, is two things. The first thing is they're not clear on the why they're doing those things, right? They're doing them because their CEO told them they should do them or their board yelled at them or some competitor is doing them versus like, oh, I see what my customers are doing. I see what's happening in the market. And based on those behaviors and changes, I need to do some very specific marketing work. Right. And like you and I always would be like, what do we believe about what it takes to grow over the next year or two years? And so examples of that are like, oh, well, search engines are going to get disrupted by AI. So we need to invest more in video to have a more diversified presence in search. Right. Like that's like the why behind why you would go invest in a video strategy. Right. So it's not just about having those strategic points. It's about having kind of a, a, a companion slide that is the why or the core beliefs that you have as to why you would do those things, right? Right. I think that's the thing that I do. That's my working model, which is before we started planning here, what I wrote out was like a precursor to planning, which is kind of the problems that we have to solve for customers and the opportunities we have as a marketing team. And then you kind of ladder that into like, these are the things I want our planning to solve for. So you actually have some context going into planning in terms of these are the actual things our planning to solve for. The three bullet points you called out, I'd be interested if you think about it the same way. That's not the entire thing the marketing team are working on. Like, so like no, that's not all the stuff. Right. It's where you want to see some outsized investment. Like, it's like, we're going to do all of the other things, like a continuation of the things that are working. But like, there's three things that we have to nail 
next year that are truly pivotal to us being successful. Like that's the bullet points I think you're calling out. Oh, Kieran, I just, I love what you just said there because along this discussion, we're going to highlight some potholes, some traps you can fall in. One of the biggest strategy traps before we get into budgeting is I'm going to make sure that all of every single person on my team's work is represented in my strategy. That is how to fail. Yeah, it is. Exactly. Right? Because you're giving n- no priority, no signal, no magnitude to what you're trying to work on. You're, what you're actually solving for is, oh, I don't want my team to be upset or disenfranchised. Right. And I will tell you right now, anytime you solve for your team instead of the customer, you are set up to fail. Every time. It is like, I've seen this happen enough that if you are solving for the feelings of your team, you're going to fail. Because I will tell you what will make your team feel great working on hard problems and winning. Like that is how people get satisfaction and enjoy the work that they're doing. Right. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, invest, divest, keep the same. And that is the right model to run, right? And I think that one of the things you have to balance is if you're in the divest or even keep the same, it doesn't mean your work is not important. And it doesn't mean we do not need to succeed in those things. It just means there's like two to three things that we really have to push on next year. Probably that's where you would spend your time. That's like how I think about it. This is where I'm going to spend an outside portion of my time to dig into the weeds here. And they could be either very new things or they could be things that are not working as well as they should. Or they could just be like, hey, this thing is working. We need to accelerate that. Or it's a customer problem we haven't tried to solve before. But like you give the context. But to your point, if you're a team that would prefer to see all of the things on the board with equal weight and, and like the equal amount of like airtime, then you're likely on a pretty unsuccessful team because that's just not how success happens. I think this is one of the weird psychology things of being a marketer and one of the very unfair things about being a marketer is that the world expects you to have a massive amount of empathy and understanding for your customer, right? Know that customer inside and out, understand the experience they want, understand the problems they're trying to solve, right? Right. But then you have to make pretty brutal and unemotional Mm -hmm. decisions to deliver on that. Right. Like you have to tell people like, oh, the work that you're doing is less important than the work this other person is doing. Doesn't mean that the work you're doing is unimportant. It means it's less important. Right. Like that's really hard for humans to do. And that is why I think what you and I have found, in addition to be fairly unemotional people, uh, (laughs) is when you root everything in the customer and the problem statements, everybody gets on board. Yeah. Right. When you say, hey, here's what our customers' problems are. Here's how we think we can solve those problems. Then it's not like I, Kip, or I, Kieran, think your work is less important or not. It is our customers think this work is the most important and we have to do it. Right. Right. It's a, yeah. It's it's context, which is really deeply rooted in the customer signal and the kind of the why of those things. And if you can explain those things pretty well, then most people are fine with that. Like they get it. They get that that's like, okay, I, I understand why these are the problems to solve. And so if you're listening to this and you're following along, like how can I map my planning cycle to this? I think the first thing we're saying is that kind of simplistic strategic doc or simplistic strategy, which is like three to five things, likely three things. I think that's the way you've always done it. Deeply rooted in like the customer problems to solve or the opportunities that we have. And again, this is not your entire marketing plan for the following year, but this is the things that you truly need to succeed and probably where you as a leader will spend an outsized portion of your time. Yeah. So those three things, they're not going to be all you do, right? But they're going to be your top three things, or maybe it's four, whatever, whatever your your strategy comes down to. But what that means is 
You as a leader are going to spend more time there. You're going to invest more money to solve those things, to invest in those problems, to solve those problems. And the last thing is, they're also probably the most important things in addition to the customer to the company. And so they're probably going to be the things that you spend the most time working with people outside of marketing on. Right. Oh, wow, our product marketing really needs improvement. Well, if that's one of your top three strategies, you know who you're going to spend a bunch of time with? Your product leader trying to figure out how that you jointly want product marketing to work. Right. Right. And so that's why when you call those out, and I think historically, Kieran, back to your point, the details, have a couple page write up of like, what are we specifically going to do and what investments are needed to make it happen? Right. This is where you go from strategy to budget is where you take those priorities, you write out the details so that you understand how you actually need to invest to make those things come true. Yeah, I can't share it, but I can actually tell you. So that's what we did, right? So precursor, here are the opportunities, here are the problems to solve, all baked within like customer insights or the problems that, you know, the competitive problems that we have that uh, we need to solve. Then we take that and we have only a certain number of people. We call them initiative owners. Again, because it's not the entire, we're not trying to change all things. We're trying to change a couple of things. And so we have these initiative owners and they build out these kind of two pagers. And those two pagers are kind of, to your point, we actually look at the key challenges that that person is going to work on, the key customer insights of why we feel that their problem is worth solving. And then we kind of map those into quarterly OKRs, like what are the actual tangible deliverables, a metric or a artifact. And we update against those OKRs each week for some of the teams, actually, and then each month for other teams. Because if you're in the brand team and you're the product marketing team, the updates are likely going to be month by month. It's actually really hard to have updates be you know worth it for week by week. But Correct. if you're in some of the kind of performance marketing teams or the growth teams and actually having weekly, what did we ship that week can be really useful. And so then the cadence of that, I think, differs per teams. But that's the kind of stack rank that I use, which is the, the precursor, the overarching, here's where we should invest, the initiative owners, okay, like these are the people we really need to see this kind of clarity from, the two-pager, and then like mapping that into the quarterly OKRs. Uh, I love that. I think that's a great model that anybody can follow. And one of the aspects that I really like about that is basically what you're telling people is depending on how quickly you get results from a given strategy, whether it be performance more weekly, you know, more qualitative strategies, probably more monthly, you're going to document that and you're going to build a loop around that. Right. Did I achieve my goals? Yes or no. And why? Yes or no. And what do we need to improve upon, do differently because of that? And if you're a performance marketer and you wait till the end of the month to look at everything, you probably miss like three to 10 opportunities to get better in that month. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And either fix the problem or, wow, this thing's working way better than I expected. I have to double down and go even harder against that because it is so much better than I would have expected. Yeah. Here's what I really believe. Yeah, please. Success is deeply rooted in the things that sound really boring, right? Like, <laughs> Tell us more. Tell us more. One of those like things that actually truly matter is being able to create a measurable goal. And that sounds so simplistic, but I have seen time and time again. Oh, uh, I have no, no fault of people, but they, like managers or whoever it is, there's a whole series of goals from teams where it is not clear... Like if you ask that person at the end of the month, articulate how you succeeded or didn't succeed against this thing. And when you actually really inspect it, it's like really squishy. It's like, well, you know, I think I did it, but I don't know if I did it because there's not a clear measurable outcome. And I think 
here is why measurable outcomes matter so much and getting this into like your rituals, right? Like I have OKRs, I update them each and every month. I can clearly articulate whether I've been successful or not. The reason it helps is because every company, I think, where it starts to get into trouble is at the management layer, right? It's really the management layer because they set the culture for everyone else. They're such an important layer. I think they've got a hard time over the kind of tough two years we went through in tech, a lot of negative press by managers, but great managers are you know, the reason most companies succeed. And I think that management leader is really successful. But where managers really struggle is when they aren't able to articulate or they don't really know if their teams are succeeding or not, right? They don't really understand what good looks like because their team has these squishy goals and they come to the end of the month or quarter or whatever your cycle is and they look at it and they go, huh, I don't know, like, did these people do well or not? I'm not sure because the goal isn't measurable enough. Like I can't articulate whether that person succeeded or not. And it actually, there's some other things that this really helps. If you have clarity and goals, it really helps teams to prioritize Mm -hmm. the individual contributors. It helps them understand like, okay, what does success look like and what I should actually prioritize. And that's a really big thing for for teams. It helps managers be able to articulate the success, like whether we're succeeding or not. It helps them be able to manage. It makes management much easier because the relationship is much cleaner. Because like we said, we were going to do these things. There's clear deliverables. Are we going to do these things? And so that part where you take the the kind of strategic inputs and you break it into two pagers, that like clear articulation of deliverables all the way down from you to your director or your VPs, directors, managers, indices, like just that clarity of deliverables to me will make or break your year, could make or break your year, depending on how good you are at doing that thing. To build on that a little bit, you know, success takes commitment Mm -hmm. and people think commitment is, oh, I'm going to do this thing over and over again and I'm going to be consistent at it. That's not commitment. Commitment is to be accountable for a goal and something bad or something good happens whether you do or do not achieve that goal, right? Right. For example, it's like if you're exercising, right? You're trying to build your strength. You could say like, hey, I'm just going to do push-ups every day and I'm going to get stronger. And that's partially true. But if you have a specific goal that I want to be able to do 200 push-ups in five minutes and I'm going to work towards that, then you know what you're going to do? You're going to get a lot stronger, right? Right. Those things are deeply connected. And the point you're making is the most important clarity somebody can provide is what the actual goal is. And if you have hand-wavy kind of goals and outcomes, you know what the other thing that happens is? Everybody thinks they're doing a good job. Everyone thinks they are doing a good Everybody job. Everybody's doing a good job. I did this stuff on yeah, my list. And, and I did this stuff on my list. I'm fantastic. Exactly. It breeds a culture of bureaucracy. And actually, most nearly all people or anyone who you really want to work with, they actually want that clarity. Like I have, I don't think yes. I've worked with anyone where I've like helping them craft the goal where they're like, oh, I don't want to, I actually don't want this thing because now I'm clearer on the measurable outcome or like what I'm actually trying to deliver. Everyone loves it, enjoys it because it helps them prioritize their time, helps them understand how they can succeed. And to your point, the squishier the goal is, it's a really simplistic litmus test. Like go through your team after this podcast, after this podcast, go through their team, go through their goals and ask yourself, could I actually sit in a room with my founder and articulate whether this person was successful or not? Like they had a clear deliverable that mapped to a customer problem and they were successful at delivering that or not. And I think a lot of the times the way we craft goals are maybe. (laughs) It's open to interpretation. And to your point, if it's open to interpretation, then it does breed this kind of culture where no one, we're not raising the bar. It's really hard to raise a bar when you don't have clarity on like, who are the bar raisers and what actually does go into raising that bar? Well, yeah, I, I think part of the challenge about life is knowing when life is about relatives versus absolutes. Like, where are you relative to other people versus like, there is just a right or a wrong answer. 
And you know, and you have and you have to do it. And I think one of the points we're making when it comes to goals, those are absolutes. Like there should be a very clear answer. Like we both worked for an amazing person named JD Sherman over our years, and his saying was like, a leader's job is to take confusion and pass through clarity, yes. right? You take all this jumbled yeah. mess, and on the other side of you, the people on the other side, it's like it is crystal clear to them, right? And yep. that's when we're talking about going from some strategic priorities to like a goal, action plan, aligning with other teams. You align with other teams based on the clarity of your goal and then the swim lanes of who's doing what to contribute to that goal. Right, and right? this is a really important part. If you are a marketing leader and you're sitting there and you're thinking, wow, I actually think my teams don't have the clarity on the deliverables. I actually think our goals are a little bit squishy. That's your problem. It's not their problem. Correct. It's not the team's problem. Like it, it is, I don't put that on the teams. I don't put that on the managers. I don't put that on the individual contributors. It's up to you as a marketing leader to set those expectations and you yourself see you, that kind of show what that looks like and even get in and help people write goals. Because I, I think too often we sit back and say, well, I don't agree with that goal, go rewrite it. No, you go rewrite it and you show them what you mean because that's the easiest way to demonstrate at all times like what you actually want that person to do. So that's been a realization for me with some of the companies I've been doing advisory for around marketing. When I really push into the goals, it's like, oh, this is kind of like a squishy goal yeah. and it would be easier for you, the founder and the CEO to know if marketing is succeeding or not if you actually make sure that that deliverable is very, very clear and mapped to a customer problem. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business, every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice, nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest-growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight in one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love this show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because... I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. I love it. Okay, so so far we've covered strategy. And by the way, to remind people, this was a show we're doing based on about a bazillion YouTube comments yeah. <laughs> asking us to do this show. So uh, if you like the show, please leave us a comment. Or if you have follow-up questions or follow-up show ideas on this topic, leave us a comment on YouTube. Okay, now let's get into the thick of it, which is budgeting. This is probably one of my least favorite things to do. You don't enjoy the back the and forth? World. You don't enjoy the back and forth and trying to get your budget shipped? No? Really? Well, no, I well, it's just... It. Uh, <laughs> I, I find it to be a maddening experience to lock down a budget, <laughs> right? Because... Look, anytime I do a budgeting process now with anybody, especially if they're new, right? Like a new leader joins the team. What is the first thing I tell them? And this is the first thing that I would tell all of you watching is if you are going to spend the vast majority of your time arguing on the last three to 5% of the budget, which is a really stupid thing to do because you have this whole other 95% of the budget over here that you will like, you won't challenge, you won't revisit, you won't think about how to spend differently. Instead, you'd be like, oh, well, we've been doing this and we've been doing this. So we got to keep doing those things. So we only have this little bit of money left. And so we're all going to argue about where that money should go. 
And that is the first step of how to fail at budgeting, right? Like you have to look at the totality of the money and people you have to do the work and feel free to completely redo it. And this technically out in the world, it's called zero-based budgeting, right? Where you look at what you need to do and you build a budget that starts at zero up to what you're trying to accomplish, not based off of the budget that you had like the Mm, previous year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how many times did you and I end up arguing with people over like, sometimes it was like half a percent of the budget, right? you know, like a very small amount of money relative to what was out there. Yeah, I think this is, um, so a couple of things. I think if you're going through this process, a great finance team will push and prod you. I think that is actually a healthy relationship. I agree, yeah. Because again, I think a great marketing leader's job is to explain the value of their work And I think that having great counterparts across different departments to really push and prod you to make sure you articulate that is a valuable thing. I I actually like what you said. I hadn't thought through that, which is don't take the run rate plus X percent. Like actually just start with the strategy and do it bottoms up. Pretty similar to the part, one part we did really skip over is like your strategy should map to a bottoms up model. We we can probably touch on that, but that's how you do the budget. And then, yeah, you want to argue about the big things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not the tiny exactly. things, right? Like the tiny things are probably not worth losing a lot of like calories debating something with. I don't know if you can lose calories debating. Maybe the way I do. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I've debated with you. Yeah. It's pretty animated. <laughs> it's pretty intense. Uh, so I agree. Like the last three to 5%, it's really the 95% that you really want to have healthy debates. And again, great, great, great leadership teams have healthy, healthy debates. It's a, it's an actually good signal of a high-functioning team if you have people who question your budget, who poke and prod your budget, who disagree with your budget. I just think that's a good dynamic to have. Yeah. So the way I also think about this is your job as a leader, especially a leader of marketing, is you are a capital allocator, right? The question is, are you clear on what type of capital allocator you are, right? Like if you're a head of engineering, you allocate people and you allocate people against problems. And that, that's it. And as long as you're aligned on the problems, you can do that. If you're a marketer, you have to say, I have both people and program spend actual dollars that I can go and buy advertising with, hire agencies, do other things with, right? And I have some amount of that money, right? That adds up to 100%. And how do I want that allocated? I think what you and I have said on the show before is we want you to think about allocating that like a venture capitalist. We want you to, to say, hey, you need to have a portfolio of bets, even if you're an early stage solo marketer, right? Like you at least have to say like, all right, I'm doing these three things and I'm gonna invest disproportionately. I'm not gonna invest equally across these three things, right? You have to say, what are the things that are gonna have the biggest impact to my plan and am I investing in them in an outsized way? And do I also maybe have some smaller bets that could plant some seeds to have really big results down the road that I want to go ahead and do today as well. Yeah, I think there's two things that people really want information on when they're planning, like marketing leaders when they're planning budget. The first is what I hear, I'm curious what you hear, is like, okay, how should I split my money between the organic ways that I create demand, the paid ways that I create demand and brand. Mm-hmm. Like how much percentage wise of my budget, how much I allocate to brand. And then the second part is- You and what I WhatsApped about this this weekend. <laughs> yeah, we were WhatsApping because I actually think it's probably like a common question. And I had that question because I know we can get into like the, the ranges. Yeah. And the second one is what you talked about is like, how much should I invest for this year, the kind of two year and the five year. Now if you're a startup and a fast growth, small company, likely all of your money is going into the 12 months. I, if I was- 
in a series A B company, I would likely be putting 90, 95% of my money on just like making sure I have my targets at that month. And then as you mature as a company, you can diversify a little bit more. So it actually does depend upon the kind of company size. If you're if you're in a series A and B and you go to your founder, oh, I'm investing all of this for like the five-year time horizon, <laughs> judge me then, but give me my four-year allocation of stock and like uh, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> so I think I think it really does depend. But what do you think about that marketing leader who's trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I think about my paid ways that I capture demand, my organic ways that I capture demand, and then like what proportion of money I should put into my demand creation, which is usually like brand and things like that? Yeah. So I think before you can answer that question, which is kind of like, how do you allocate within marketing budget? I think you have to know what your strategy is and what the market is, Kieran, right? So like, for example, the last couple of years in technology, you've seen a lot of buyers pull back their buying, consolidate software, do all of those things. And so it's not been a hugely active buying market. There's still been buying happening, but it's much less active than the previous years. In those types of climates, you're more focused on retaining your customers, generating demand from the people who are shopping, because it's going to be much harder to create new demand, right? Because there's just like hard financial Mm. constraints. So in environments like that, you would probably spend less money on brand marketing, for example, or maybe a little less in product marketing, things like that, right? And so you first need to look at your strategy and then you need to look at the market climate. If you go into, let's think 2024, because that's what we're talking about. Uh, I'm an optimist. If I look at all the fiscal policy, I think that business spending is going to increase, not decline next year. I think businesses are going to invest. And so I think it's probably more of a balanced year of spending and marketing investment. And in a balanced year, you should have a model that tells you how much demand you need to generate. Yeah. And you kind of need to spin to that model. Exactly. But how you get to that model is pretty varied. Ideally, over time, you want 60 to 80% of your signups, leads, whatever your inbound motion is to come from organic channels like organic search, email, social media. Then you want the kind of 20 to 30% ideally coming from paid channels. Google, Meta, influencer partnerships, affiliate marketing, things of that nature, right? And so that's largely what I think the best teams pull off that do really, really great kind of demand generation and performance marketing work. Now the question you're asking is like, of the total budget, what does that look like? I'm in the, your demand generation is probably 60 to 65% of your total marketing budget right? At a scaled company. At a earlier stage company, it's probably more like 70 to 85%. Right. Are you buying what I'm selling on this? Yeah, yeah. I think the one, the one distinction here is likely that I've seen, and I would be cool to get some benchmarks. I wonder if OpenView of anything on this, which is yeah. the kind of like real virality B2C to B kind of SaaS product versus like a, you know, a typical SaaS product because they're getting so much of their signups through that kind of virality. And yeah. then they spend a lot more on brand, PMM, product marketing, and actually trying to move those users to actually pay to accounts. Uh, yeah, so I, I think I think there are a few outliers in the situation and companies that have a viral product is one of them. All those percentages would not hold true for there. The guidelines we're giving you are for the 98% of companies that they would apply to in the world versus the 
kind of 2% of outliers. I would say for most of those companies, they likely don't invest enough in those core marketing channels. And then when their virality starts to plateau, they haven't really built up the ding, muscle ding. or the engines in those channels. So they, you know, they haven't got that balance completely right. That's kind of what I've seen. I've seen the same thing. So even if you're a viral company, I would think you and I would still say you should be spending 40 to 50% on performance and, and yeah. demand generation to have that long-term hedge. But okay, so let's say you believe what we're saying here that of your overall marketing budget, demand generation slash performance marketing is somewhere in that kind of 60 to 65% range, if 60 to 70% range if you're scaled, and then probably more in that 70 to 85% if you're an earlier stage business. Then that means the remainder of that spend, that kind of 15 to 35% of your marketing spend needs to be split across any event programs, brand marketing, product marketing, those channels that are going to help create awareness and consideration out in the marketplace. And so then you're asking, well, like, how do I think about investing in that bucket? And you and I were WhatsApping about this. It's like, I think brand is somewhere between 10 to 20% of your yeah. marketing spend. If you're a scale company, if you're an early stage company, brand is probably very little. And you're right. going to try to rely on events and product marketing and a few of those strategies to drive your brand awareness with a smaller group of people because you need a smaller number of buyers to actually like hit your targets and grow and be successful. Yeah. Do you agree with my break? Totally. That's the number I've heard a lot is like that 10 to 20% number. For companies who have like fine product market fit are in a market that's competitive and actually, you know, within that range is really dependent upon some of the nuance to what you're trying to achieve. But I think there's a couple of really important things that you said within there that are, you know, if you're going through this kind of, you know, masterclass on the budget and strategy that we're trying to do here, a couple of things you said are really important, which is you have a demand model. And the first thing your budget goes towards is ensuring that you fulfill that demand model, right? You know, you do your bottoms up model, you bake in the budget and you say, cool, I need X percent of my budget to be able to feel good that I'm going to hit the company targets that I need to hit next year. And so you don't say, well, I'll hit 80% of the targets and then I'll just take the money and spend it elsewhere. Like, so your kind of percentile that you have left is going to be very dependent upon that first thing. And then I think the second thing you're saying is the rest of that budget, which does tend to be like, I think 30, 35% is like, right, tends to be split between everything else. And if you look at most post-product market fit B2B brand spend on brand, it's usually in that 10 to 20% range. Yeah, I would actually say most B2B companies spend way less than 10 to 20%, and that's part of their problem, right? Right, Because they don't have enough awareness in the market, and so they're overpaying on the performance side where they should be spending some of that money over generating awareness and consideration. I would just like to take one minute to welcome all the CFOs because I'm sure about a thousand <laughs> of you just got the last three minutes of the show <laughs> clipped out and sent to you by your marketing partners. We're here. We love you. Welcome to Marketing Against the Grain. We have spent a lot of money. We're giving you our best perspective on how to invest in marketing in a really sound and fiscal way. This is not financial advice, but we appreciate you working with the marketers out there to make all this happen. You've got to love the CFOs. They're the people who give us CFOs money. are awesome. They're awesome. CFOs, our finance leaders, they're awesome. But I think those are some good baselines in terms of actual percentages and kind of how to think about the problems and opportunities to adjust those percentages that a marketing leader and a finance leader can use to sit down together and hopefully come to a really good finalized budget, right? La last thing we should close on is how do you get your CEO and founder 
on board. Hold on. Before we do that, I, we got to give people the 30 second because I know that we're going to get about a 100 YouTube comments about this if we don't address. People are going to want to know tactically how do we manage budgets. And at HubSpot for a long time, we managed budgets in Google Sheets. Now we use Allocadia, which is like a SaaS budgeting software that syncs with like your travel software and everything else. But you're going to have some cost centers in your business. And then those budgets are going to be mapped to cost centers. And they're probably going to either exist in Google Sheets, Excel, or some type of SaaS product yes. like Allocadia. And then we are then managing projects in Asana. You could use Asana. You can use a bunch of other project management tools. But that's kind of the stack of getting the work done, right? Right? Is some type of budgeting software and some type of project management software. You wanna, yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Same. And then like every month, we look to see where we're running under or over. And if we want to redistribute across any kind of the budget lines. Perfect. Okay. I just wanted, I knew we were going to get like literally like dozens of questions on YouTube if we didn't address that. Now let's go into the last section here on getting the CEO bought in. So I think it probably does depend on the CEO. Yes. You know, Wade really likes to look at the tactics. I think other CEOs might just look at the memo. Like I actually enjoy working with Wade because he likes to get into the details and it forces me to really be crystal clear and provide a bunch of clarity to that. So I really, I, I think this one is like a little harder to answer because I was thinking through this. I did this kind of post on LinkedIn and got a ton of questions like, how do I sell the CEO on the thing that I'm doing? I think, first of all, I, I brought it up multiple times, but Founders and CEOs understand customers the best do. Mm -hmm. They understand the problems. And so if you map your strategy to like a couple of clear, concise customer problems, it's going to go a long way, whether that CEO and founder wants to get into the strategy plus tactics or just wants to really look at the strategy and push and prod on that. I think making sure that there is clarity on the deliverables. Like I actually would go into like, given overarching like deliverables, like making sure they understand what marketing are going to deliver in the first quarter, second quarter. So you can tangibly see the work related to the strategy versus just having the memo and saying like, this theoretically sounds good, but like what actually happens? Like how does the life mm -hmm. of the customer get much, much better? And then give the distribution of budget to show that there's cohesion around how you're spending money mapped to the kind of problems you're trying to solve. That's kind of my best effort at trying to give something that works, but you probably have a couple of others. You've done this a long time. I, I got a few things. First thing, your CEO is also your customer. Your customers are your customer, your CEOs are like your customer. That. And you got to know your CEO just like you know your customers. Like you have to spend enough time with your CEO that you understand like, what is the language he or she uses? Mm. Are they visual or are they auditory? How do That's they want to be presented things? Is there ways that you can package information that maybe you wouldn't package for your customers, but you would package for them so they understand it? And here's a very specific example. Here, we both worked a lot with Brian Halligan, HubSpot's founder, longtime CEO, now chairman of the board. Brian loves a before and after slide. Yes. Loves it. <laughs> <laughs> loves a before and after slide, which so which which be as simple. Which I still do those in all my stuff now as well. I love them too. Yeah. I think they're fantastic. Which would be like in 2023, we did this, and now in 2024, we're moving to do these new things. And here's why. And so it's like, oh well, we we're doing this because of this, and now we're doing these new things because of these other reasons. And it's like, oh, I get what's changing, and I get what's staying the same, right? And that's the purpose of a slide or a presentation like that is to do that. The other thing I would say, Kieran, is when you get the CEO on board. I like to get the CEO on board very early in the process. Yeah, before you ship you the final plan. Because you don't want to ship it exactly. to your team, anybody without the CEO on board. 100%. So basically, what I think about it is you want to draft your strategy. 
you want to get some feedback from like the core leaders on your team or the people you trust. And then you want to sit down with the CEO and walk through it and be like, are we on the same page? What feedback do you have? And they're going to be like, oh, I want you to change this or I don't understand this. And then normally if you're on board with that, Karen, then the team can go and do the tactical memos, get in the weeds of everything. And then you can share those with the CEO and he or she can read, engage, comment, and do that kind of second layer. But they're already bought into the strategy. Now you're just having a debate over tactics kind of in parallel while you're doing the budgeting. Yeah, this is great advice. There's two things you said that people really should follow. So the first one actually is really interesting. My first presentation to Wade was, uh, it was a strategic presentation or like, you know, the way I think of strategy. And I did a BH presentation actually, like I, I did the Brian Halligan presentation and it wasn't that it was awful, but it, it had some like real misses for how like Wade likes to see. He thinks about it. The key things that he, because everyone is different. In ter- I'm different, right? I'm different from totally. you. You're probably different from someone else. Like in terms of like how we like to ingest information. And I hadn't really thought about that part, which is making sure I understood the nuance between those two things, right? Not just replicating the thing I used to do at HubSpot for Brian or some of the other execs, but like making sure I understand the kind of nuance and what we wanted. And actually it was really funny. Like one, some of my team saw the doc and they were like, he is not going to be happy with like these couple of things. And they were completely right. Right. So it showed, it showed like I should have, you know, <laughs> done my due diligence there. And that, that's my miss. The second thing is I totally agree. You do not get buy-in from the final plan, like I actually sent Wade the precursor before we even started planning to see if he agreed with the problems. Now, again, I actually yeah. included too much detail because I'm used to the kind of six to eight page memo and I could have like reduced it. That was another thing I learned is like, I can actually do this in less amount of words and less amount of content. But that precursor is like, these are the right problems, right? These are the problems to solve. Because if the CEO agrees and the founder agrees that you're solving the right problems and they understand those problems, then the strategy is not going to be too much of a departure from that. It's like the articulation of how you plan to invest in those things. So I think that's two really great lessons for any kind of marketing leader who's going through that process this year. I completely agree. And I think once you have the CEO on board early, you have an ally with finance, you have an ally with your partners in sales and everything else, and you are kind of all aligned and that planning process is going much faster. It's going to go much smoother. And that's what we're trying to do. Okay, we covered a lot of ground. It was a today. lot. <laughs> I, I remember you, you texted me and you're like, should we do budget? And I was like, boy, all right, we'll try. <laughs> I was like, you're like, I don't have enough to talk about here. Like I'm like, we down. could probably do a part two. And if you guys have a bunch of questions, we will do a part two. But we covered a lot of ground in terms of how you set strategy, how you allocate money, how do you get your team and your CEO on board with that strategy? I think it was a good discussion. I feels very cathartic coming out of it. I feel like I've gotten it all out. <laughs> I'm feeling very zen and peaceful going into the 2024 business cycle. Anything else you want to add before we get out of here, Karen? Yeah. Because I do know some people in Zapper listen to this. I have to give a shout out to the team who helped me through planning because actually it was pretty great process, I have to say. Like, uh, uh, yeah. Ours was not bad, but you have to it go was, through a uh, lot of planning was, cycles to like... Yeah, to get good. Like, and you have yeah. to have great people to get through We've it definitely well. <laughs> iterated and learned some things. So a lot of teams help on all of the recommendations I give. A lot of teams help to give the clarity on how we do things. But I think this is one of the harder things to go through for any marketing leader or even any kind of marketing manager or someone on that team. So I think we've given some pretty good advice. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Leave us some comments, hit subscribe on YouTube. We'll see you real soon on Marketing Against the Grain.